What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. On this show, numerous times, we have covered things like nutrition, what to eat, gut health, etc., but there's always a spin. There's always a hook. There's always something interesting about it. And this week is no exception. For example, did you know that blueberries can help you cope with the after effects of trauma? Did you know that salami can cause depression or that boosting vitamin D intake can help treat anxiety? Yeah, neither did I. This week's episode is less about a dogma, a diet, a fad and more about the specific impacts that various foods can have on our everyday experiences. And there is no better person to explain this to us than our guest, Uma Naidu. Uma is a Harvard psychiatrist and author of the brand new book, This Is Your Brain on Food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, PTSD, anxiety, OCD, and more. You see, Uma has devoted her career to the science of food and its link to mental health. Dr. Uma is the founder and director of the Nutritional and Metabolic Psychiatry Department at Mass General Hospital in Boston, where she actually consults on nutritional intervention for the psychiatrically and medically ill. So essentially, think about a doctor prescribing food. I find it fascinating. I hope you do too. And don't forget, we're back to weekly episodes. As you've noticed, we are trying this out, seeing how it works. So don't miss an episode. Make sure you click that follow button in whatever podcast app you are listening to. With that, going to turn it over to my interview with Uma Naidu as we talk about her brand new book, This Is Your Brain on Food. Enjoy. Nutritional psychiatry, I didn't even know that was a thing. I know about how food impacts the body and, and how there are neurotransmitters and they're more in the gut. And there's all this stuff out there. Most people listening know that. But you're telling me there's an actual field that talks about specifically how food affects your brain and your mental health as much as a drug we might put in to do the same thing. 
Absolutely. It's a very nascent field. That's why people are starting to hear about it. It also really emerged around the uh, burgeoning evidence uh, connecting, connecting the gut and brain and really our understanding of the gut microbiome. So it's, I'm not surprised if people haven't heard about it. And there are very few people practicing, you know, part of what my book is doing and I'm hoping will continue to do is bring this field forward because people are looking for more tools in yeah. the toolkit. Um, I still prescribe medications, but I know that they are limiting, and I know that clinically. Well, I also know they've saved the lives of some of my patients. So it's it's sort of being able to have a number of options for people. And yes, the way that we eat is very powerful. We have a lot of autonomy. We have a lot of power right at the end of our fork. And those decisions, since we eat several meals a day, and eating is one of our primary activities. Um, it's an easy solution to try to tweak in order to feel emotionally better. Yeah. Food is so complex and there's so much competing information, as I was alluding to. How much do we actually know about it? How confident can we be in the science as it currently stands? Or do you imagine, you know, look, this is the best we can do now, but it's probably going to be entirely different 20 years from now? So that's an interesting uh, question, Chris, because I think there are two there are two separate sort of answers. And let me explain it this way in the way that I see it. I think there's the culture of diet wars and um, sort of food dilemmas that people face every single day. I see it in my practice. Should I eat this? What should I exclude? Should I do that? Should I count calories? Should I, you know, count carbs? What should I do? But the, separate to that, there are also some basic principles. Now, nutritional psychiatry is really the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients based on the scientific evidence. Scientific evidence may evolve and change, but I don't think that we're going to get away from some really important principle principles like a plant-rich diet, you know, healthy, clean sources of protein, use of healthy fats, um, you know, uh, it, it, being aware of where you're getting your fiber from. All of those things are really rooted in some basic healthy eating principles, but they also have an impact on mental health based on either nutrient or based on the fiber or based on the vitamin involved. What's sustainable about nutritional psychiatry is that they're going to be these principles that are going to help your mental health. Does it mean that in a year from now or two years, we won't hear something exciting about the microbiome that could change or tweak something? Absolutely. But things in med medical science change all the time. That's how we keep current. But I don't think it's going to be so drastic that in 10 years from now, someone is going to say, Chris, you should eat every single packaged, processed, ultra-processed food, and you shouldn't really care where your food comes from because, you know, it's yeah. all good. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, so. and that's where I get so frustrated because uh, hopefully we're going to have a guy on the show, and he is this big promoter of what's called the carnivore diet, which I'm sure you've heard of. But that's one example of something that is so counter to, to what I know about it. In fact, they go so far as many of these doctors, I'm sure you've heard of them talking about how plants are actually bad for us because they have protective mechanisms that impede our digestion and actually cause havoc in the body. Then there's keto, which is all of a sudden now eat a ton of fat and don't, you know, and then there was Atkins and it's like, at each stage, there are seemingly intelligent people saying these things. And that's why I think it gets so tough. I'm interested in your take on, because you were just saying, right, we're not going to get to eat processed food, but there are people, seemingly intelligent people, putting things out like just eat meat or just eat fat. And that seems crazy. Right. This is one of the reasons as I, you know, really built out my, um, my research and, and did work in this field and continue to, I hope, bring it forward in a good way. Um, you know, I consider myself diet agnostic. So if someone who is on a carnivore diet came to see me and was worried about their mental health, I am going to share my opinion of how can we bring some balance to this diet. Same thing with someone who's vegan. Um, you know, you may be missing some nutrients. We don't have to Yes, we can check things and we can assess if you need to up certain nutrients in a, in a plant-based way that you're comfortable with. So I think it's about finding the solution really for that person's mental well-being. 
I think when we get into these diet wars, and, and you're right, there, there are there people will quote scientific literature and how this statistics mean, this statistic means that, you know, you should only consume this type of food and not that. Um, they're just like the carnivore diet. There are other practitioners who believe that a plant-based diet is the only way to go. And, you know, um, for the sake of transparency, I was raised vegetarian culturally. Having to be born into a vegetarian family. That's why I'm mm. vegetarian. And I don't necessarily have a political or other belief around whether you should eat meat or not. I just happen to be, and as a chef, I cook anything. So I feel like I, I, what I, for myself, I try to do is bring a sense of balance to what I do, but also bring a sense of balance to the opinion. So if you walked into my office and said, well, I'm trying to struggle between this and that, I'm actually going to talk to you about what you're eating, what the nutrients are, break down and unpack what nutrients are, ne- are sort of negatively affecting your mental health. And what are the things you can do to tweak to actually address that symptom or address um, how you're feeling emotionally? Because if not, people are just walking around confused. You know, one day it's eat all the fat you can. Another day it's like everything should be low fat. Then, you know, uh, on a different day it's exclude this entire, you know, this, this entire group of foods because they're right. plants or whatever it is, you know. So it's, it's, it's just, it gets to be very hard for people to interpret information. And that's one of the reasons why I think we struggle so much. Let's say you're comparing food to pills. Okay. We're comparing food to pills. So we're comparing our diet to, you know, Ritalin and some SSRIs and all the other things, right? ADD medication and anxiety medication. What is the equivalent? And what I mean by that is like how much impact you think you can have with both? Uh, you know, as I said, I, I do still prescribe medications, but I also feel like they are limited in their effectivity. Um, they can be life-saving. And in certain instances, Chris, if someone has a severe depression, has lost touch with reality, is manic, um, or, you know, so severely depressed that they're suicidal, medications are a very important role as well as other forms of treatment, but they need to be seeing a doctor. However, studies have shown, for example, in studies of anxiety, that about 50% of people don't necessarily recover from all of their symptoms. And this is even including with forms of therapy. So I think there's ongoing research that is that suggests to us we need a more holistic and integrated model of care, which is what I speak about nutritional psychiatry, meaning that it's not, you know, it's 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 not just taking out that prescription pad, it's what else do you need to be doing? And and this is where diet forms a very powerful role because a lot of those individuals have are maybe eating a poor diet, may have, especially during the pandemic, started leaning on foods that are just simply unhealthy for them. So it's tweaking, it's tweaking that. And also understanding that there are individuals who, you know, DSM-5 and the, the upcoming version of it is based on checklists and many people do do not fall into those checklists some people have some obsession um uh, uh, some traits from ocd but they're depressed someone else has trauma and is anxious you know people f- people are human we, we we don't just fall into these categories and that's where we need more solutions that bring these parts together and that's where a prescription pad can be limiting and research has proven this so i think in addition to all of that no one is saying don't take your medications but there are other things you can be doing too. You can be exercising. You could be learning mindfulness and meditation. You can be making sure you have adequate hydration because guess what? If someone's dehydrated, they can present with a panic attack. Uh, dehydration has been associated with symptoms of depression. So knowing all of this, you know, understanding that time in nature helps helps uplift your mood, um, let alone everything else, working on your stress. So it isn't a one one size fits mm. all. And this is where we need to be comprehensive in unpacking what's going on with mental health and offering people more solutions than, you know, here goes, you know, take take this prescription and, and leave my office kind of thing and come back in a month. But that's how the medical system is is set up and it's failing us. Certainly it's failing us in mental health. Yeah, it is. But I also think a lot of it is on the individual as opposed to the medical system. And here's here's what I mean. I'm approaching 40 and every year that goes by, I'm readily aware of how much more time and resources are required 
just for healthy maintenance. And it's almost untenable because young kids and in the middle of the pandemic and work and fixing stuff around the house. So I think people often go, look, I know I want to mentally feel better, but changing my diet, especially in the midst of all the noise, is exhausting, difficult, expensive. I'm not a chef. So, you know, if I have to go out in nature and I have to meditate and I have to hydrate and I got to monitor my stress and I got to stretch and I got to work out and I got to, it's too much, you know? So sometimes people just say, just give me the pill. Let me live my life. I'll do the best I can. Is there a message you would give people that feel overwhelmed that they can still make progress and not be so worried about it? Absolutely. So, you know, what you just said, Chris, um, is overwhelming to any person. And when I said it, what, what I'm really referring to is some sort of a stepwise plan. I think what we've been, the trap we've fallen to is an overnight fix. Um, you know, we're a nation of convenience and quick fixes and we want, you know, we want the pull and we want to feel better. We want everything else to go away. The truth is life doesn't work that way. And even with medication, it takes a few weeks to act. Sometimes, you know, you can feel an effect in the first week, but very often um, someone who's prescribed an SSRI, for example, doesn't feel better immediately. Similarly with nutrition, you know, it's not an overnight fix, but it is a stepwise plan that is based on healthy principles that we somehow have forgotten even before the pandemic. This mental health crisis was still there. Um, maybe there was less of a focus on it. So, so it is the word of encouragement is it's a stepwise, slow and steady plan. Go at your own pace. But realize when you put down that processed food, when you pay attention to the added refined sugars, when you're starting to cook even the simplest of meals, you know, in my book, This Is Your Brain on Food, chapter 11 was the most difficult chapter for me to write because it's recipes. And as a chef, I, you know, I, I, I kept thinking, I don't want people to have to learn how to make a souffle. I just want them to eat healthy whole foods. Just, you know, cook. So the recipes are super simple, meant because I actually began cooking later in life. And because I came from that large South Asian family, everyone else cooked. So I was kind of tasting food all the time. Mm. So I understand it's not easy to just teach yourself how to cook. Um, and for that reason, you know, I encourage people to try a recipe or two, you know, Build in a walk with your dog, your family, play outdoors with the kids, um, you know, walk to buy the newspaper, walk to get that cup of coffee, build in things that you can almost do naturally as part of your life. And you don't have to do all 10 things at one time. Mm. You know, when I ask people to make changes with their nutrition, because I want it to be empowering, I ask them the one habit that they know is bothering them about what they're eating or what they're doing with their food to start there because that's powerful. If they've identified it, it's in their awareness, it's in their consciousness and they are thinking about it. So that's a very powerful place to start and have that then lead the way to the other things. Yeah. They're simple things. You know, I have some pillars of nutritional psychiatry that I ask people to build in, but these are not rocket science. The good thing though, is they're based on scientific evidence. So then I'm not just saying eat leafy greens because I'm a doctor and I said so, you know, it's eat leafy greens because there are these multiple nutrients in them, but they contain folate and low folate is associated with depression. So guess what? If you're eating a healthy bowl of salad every day, lots of colors in it, but based on a bed of leafy greens, that's a good nutrient for you to be adding in every single day. Hmm. So it's, it's simple things like that. And it's slow and steady. Um, hmm. It's uh, and, and, you know, the moment someone feels stuff to feel better, they want to do more. And that's when they pick up the pace. I love that. And we're going to get into all of it. One other question on this idea of effectiveness. Let's say a patient comes to you, right? And they're, they're, something's wrong. It doesn't matter the malady, right? But mentally something's wrong. If you had on a scale of zero to 100 and you only had the options of food, diet, and medication, how much do you think each one could improve it. What I'm trying to understand is like, would you say, look, food can get us 80% of the way there in most cases, or, or is it vice versa? Food gets us 20. I'm just trying to understand based on your background and the research, how effective actually is this? Sure. I think that's a great question. And I want to, uh, I want to share some caveats with you first. Yes, of course. Uh, each case is different. 
um, the the science around the microbiome and micro microbes and microbiota really shows us that each person's gut is gut microbiome is like a thumbprint. So every person is going to be different. Number one. Secondly. Um, it depends on the clinical case. As a clinician, you know, and cl- as a clinical scientist, I, I have to see how sick someone is, and if they mm-hmm. if they need a medication or even hospitalization, or um, some form of let's say higher level of care in mental health. That's that's a deciding factor right there. Does sure. it mean that they shouldn't be eating healthy meals? That their family can't help them with that? Absolutely not. But first and foremost, treat that acuity of the situation. If we were then just to look at a very simple situation, someone yeah. coming in and saying, look, should I take a medication, Dr. Naidu, or can I can I help you? Uh, can you help me tweak my diet? I think that there's always a role for, for diet and for nutritional psychiatry, always a role, because many, a few things, Chris, um, research has shown that individuals with a mental health condition diagnosis often have comorbid medical conditions. So important to be eating healthy for that reason as well. Um, another reason is that side effects of medications, whether they psychiatric or non-psychiatric medications, have you know impact on weight, impact on metabolic health. So these are important too. So there's always a role. And I would say that in the individual who is not so acutely ill, say a severe depression, that they can start with dietary changes, that will take them pretty far and actually may solve the problem entirely. Um, so I think that number one, there's always a role for diet, and number two, it depends on the clinical situation. And if someone is not sick enough that they don't need high level of care or hospitalization, they can absolutely start tweaking their diet and go pretty far. And I've had individuals who've not needed to take a medication at all, um, but been motivated and able to sustain it. I think the very key factor is nutritional changes are going to be sustainable. Right. Often with the medication, people after a certain amount of time, and it varies, it could be a month, it could be six months, it could be six years. Um, someone walks in like, Prozac has helped me for, you know, the last six years and suddenly I'm depressed again. You know, it's happened. I'm not picking on Prozac. Sure. It could be any one of those medications um, yeah. or any, um, you know, any different uh, type of psychiatric medication. But but there's a way in which... so people experience it not being effective. All right, time for a quick break. And we're going to start it out with a quiz. Do you know what the most important mineral is for our body? That answer is magnesium. Magnesium is critical in over 300 metabolic bodily processes. It has even earned the moniker of master mineral. Because magnesium does things such as building proteins, strong bones, regulating blood sugar, regulating blood pressure. It plays a component in sleep and many other things. Now, why do I tell you that? According to Harvard, Americans of all ages eat less than the daily recommended amounts of magnesium. Science Daily says that up to 50% of the U.S. population is magnesium deficient. And vitamin D can't be metabolized without sufficient magnesium levels. And unfortunately, if you're deficient, you probably feel it, but you don't know it. Our sponsor this week is Natural Stacks. And Natural Stacks has what I believe to be one of the best magnesium supplements on the market. It's called MagTech Magnesium. There's a couple of reasons I like this. First of all, they readily share who the suppliers are for every ingredient they use. They use third-party independent lab testing to guarantee the purity and potency of every product, and they use identity tests to validate each ingredient in every batch. Now, the reason I'm specifically calling out MagTech is because it is the purest, most bioavailable magnesium supplement you can buy because it features the three types of magnesium known to have the highest absorption rates. Yes, there are multiple types of magnesium. So if you suffer from poor sleep, nausea, anxiety, or fatigue, try out MagTech, and Smart People Podcast listeners will get 30% off by going to naturalstacks.com slash smartpeoplesleep. Yes, that's naturalstacks.com slash smartpeoplesleep for 30% off MagTech. naturalstacks.com 
slash smart people sleep. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's helpful because, you know, if I think of 30, 40,000 people that are going to hear this, inevitably, there's going to be 10, 15, 20,000 dealing with probably a diagnosable mental illness to some extent, right? And you, you talk about that. I think you say, I don't know, 40 some odd percent of people could have a diagnosable. And the, the percentages I'm not worried about. What I'm, what I'm interested in is, you know, a large percentage of people listening going, yeah, that, that sounds like me. I'm not struggling to the amount I can't function, but I have considered medication. And right now, maybe they're going, maybe diet can do it. And what you're saying is, yeah, maybe it can. Because we're going to talk about your book, This Is Your Brain on Food. I want to get into some specifics and recommendations and things we can try. So that's why I want to set that up. I want to start with the science behind it. I'm so interested in this. You mentioned the microbiome and all this. Can you just tell us how and why nutrition and what we eat directly impacts the brain and our mental health? Absolutely. So it starts with the science around the gut-brain connection, which is the first chapter of my books, which I fondly call the gut-brain romance. So, you know, in the last decade and a half to two decades, the science of what the microbiome is and the impact of what the microbes in our gut do has come forward. And another thing that is not well known is that the gut and brain are actually connected. They're connected in multiple ways. So even if your listeners have heard this before, the gut and brain actually arise from the exact same cells in the embryonic tissue line and then form these two organs in the body. Then these two organs are far apart in the body, but they're connected anatomically by the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve, which connects these two organs and then acts like a bidirectional superhighway allowing for chemical messages between these two organs. So in addition to that, it's helpful for people to know that about 90% of the uh, serotonin receptors and serotonin is produced in the gut. So it's not just in the brain. When you think about uh, any food that you eat, on a day when you're eating a healthier meal, food gets digested. Well, those breakdown products, very simply put, form more positive breakdown products when they're healthier foods. And those uh, healthier products are things like short-chain fatty acids. When when you're kind of going through the fast food um, lane every single day, or you're kind of living on candy uh, with all the added and refined sugars, you know, the bad microbes in the gut thrive. And the, the, the uh, breakdown products of the food are more toxic to the body. They're especially toxic in the gut. The gut has a very delicate single cell layer that lines it. Good foods, positive breakdown substances help to reduce inflammation in the gut. Bad foods, more toxic substances tend to pierce and damage that gut. That's what over time leads to conditions like leaky gut, which is intestinal permeability. But here's the thing. There's this feedback loop to the brain. So more toxic products heightened inflammation in the gut. Gut inflammation leads to brain inflammation. Neuroinflammation is being seen in research to be really an underpinning for many mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, even cognitive changes. Mm. So I like to say a happy gut is a happy mood because it sort of explains to people that when you're taking care of your gut health, you're lowering inflammation, you're eating in a healthy way, the microbes are nurtured, they're thriving. Um, what what happens is when you're eating poorly, the bad microbes thrive, and then they start to take over the environment of the gut, and that's a setup for inflammation. So it's this ecosystem, it's this 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 system that works together, and our food, from the mo- moment it enters your mouth, all the way through the digestive process, interacts with this, and that's that's why um, it turns out that we are what we eat because those breakdown products are very powerful. And what happens mm. to the food is very powerful. So did I hear you correctly that brain inflammation often plays a role in mental illness? Yes. It sounds like there's significant research that can link brain inflammation to overall inflammation, specifically inflammation in the gut, which obviously it makes a lot of sense that inflammation in the gut is caused by the things that go into the gut. I mean, I know it's not that simple, but is that a large portion of it? That that's definitely a uh, sort of a cliff notes version of it because what what we eat um, does impact that gut environment. The the gut 
also those gut microbes in the gut environment actually fulfills a lot of different functions, sleep, circadian rhythm, immunity, um, you know, mental health, um, so many things, hormones and vitamin production, things like mm. that. So it does a lot of stuff and it's almost a hub for different things that happen. But when you realize that what you eat definitely loops back in some chemical form and impacts inflammation, it that's that's helpful for people to know. It's really helpful to to grasp that concept. As we're talking about this, one thing I keep wondering about is quantity, meaning quantity of food. So we're going to get into some specific recommendations, but take somebody like myself. I think I need to eat like, I don't know, 2,500 calories a day or something, call it that, to, to just maintain. That's a lot of food. How much of these things do we have to eat for them to have an impact? Or how much do we have to eat for them to negatively impact us. Okay. So with foods that negatively impact you, if, if that's what you're eating, they're going to just consistently build up by causing more and more inflammation in your body, starting in your gut and, um, you know, working to other parts of the body. With the healthy foods, I think that the way that I, with the way that I portray and teach and educate around nutritional psychiatry, it's listening to your body, paying attention to body intelligence. So, you know, if you are fending off inflammation and really paying attention to your gut microbes and feeding them with nurturing foods that include things like fiber, which you get from vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, those types of foods, then you are taking care of your, your gut microbes. When you reduce inflammation, things like your satiety signals start to work better. So you will naturally feel more satiated when you are consuming that healthier diet. You will realize, oh, I'm kind of full. I don't need that second plate of food. I don't need that extra serving of X, Y, or Z. And I think that it becomes important to pay attention to those, to those signals. So just like it becomes important to, if you eat a certain kind of food and you develop a headache or you develop brain fog, it's also important to pay attention to that because you might actually have an intolerance of that food or it may be affecting you negatively in some way. All of that becomes important. And I think it's finding that balance for yourself. So you might find that, say you adopted healthier principles of eating, and I'm not saying you're an unhealthy eater. No, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Just yeah. say you started doing this. You may find that, you know, in a month or so, two to three weeks, you're like, well, you know, I, I'm eating less. I, I just noticed that I'm, I'm full at a certain point. Sometimes that is actually related to our hunger hormones recalibrating, uh, meaning that they kind of, they almost, um, they, they lose their cues when we kind of eating the wrong foods and, and, and mm. they don't remind us appropriately when to stop eating. So you find I've heard that I've heard that know, about junk yeah. food, like chips and stuff exactly, that is actually those, made to to miss your uh, those hormones. Those well, they're meant to be hyper palatable, and so we never put them down. We want to eat more and more of them, and uh, research has shown that they are engineered to be that way. So that's mm -hmm. a great example because when you sort of say someone is a um, you know eats fast food three out of seven days of the week, and they decide, hey, you know what, I'm just going to eat trying to make myself a salad, roast some chicken breasts at home or cauliflower steaks, whatever they might eat, and, you know, start to even cook some healthy meals at home. You know, they're naturally over time taking care of that inflammation. They are helping to heal their gut over time and really moving towards this, their system towards a healthier state. And very often in my patients, I'll find that they will come in and say, I don't have those cravings for a candy bar every night. Um, I'm learning to eat that square of dark chocolate. You know, I'm noticing that my husband wants seconds, but I'm, you know, pretty happy with the plate of food because they've changed up the constitution of what's on their plate as well. Mm. All of that becomes important. You mentioned something there that I, I have to ask you. I just, I don't, you you just said, you know, I noticed I don't have that craving for a candy bar every night. Mm -hmm. It's like you live in my house. So what does that mean for people like myself who I, I eat pretty healthy? I'll tell you, I'm not great, but healthy at night, every night after dinner, I instantly get a ridiculous sugar craving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, does that have any meaning? 
So, you know, of course, every person is different, right? And and it could also be dependent on what you're eating during the day and your own constitution. But, you know, a lot of people um, either have a habit of, you know, I really need to eat dessert every night. Maybe they grew up eating dessert. Maybe that was their lifestyle. Or maybe they always ate ice cream, whatever it is. A lot of people um, crave something and it's a habit that they're used to. And part of what I work with people around is rather than trying to deconstruct this habit, try to replace that with a healthy option. Because as long as you're not kind of eating late into the night, I mean, I do think that eating earlier allows your food to digest, helps you sleep, all of that good stuff. But, you know, say say it's a candy bar, say it's it's ice cream. Finding a healthy version that gives you that little bit of sweet taste that you might like. See, because ultimately, Chris, there's a lot of joy in, in eating. And I don't exactly. want people. I don't want people to be miserable and feel, "Oh my God, I'm never going to ever be able to eat X, Y, Z again." Why not think differently about it? You know, I have a recipe for ice cream made from bananas. There's like there are two ingredients, and you can even make a chocolate flavor. But you know what's going into it. There's no processed junk or tons of sugar in it, and it actually will help you get over that kind of fixer ice cream. Um, you, again, you don't have to eat the whole tub. It's all portion control and those healthy principles of eating. Say it's a candy bar. Can you over time, you know, maybe teach a recipe to make a um, avocado chocolate mousse that, you know, you can or even a um, something that is kind of made with dark chocolate because you have all of the cacao flavonols from the dark chocolate, which are great for your brain. And almost over time have you eat little square of dark chocolate and and i've done this with individuals and when they start to give up that candy bar almost a quiet taste for extra dark natural chocolate instead of a whole candy bar they eat a small square and they will Mm -hmm. literally call me up and say i had that with a piece of fruit some berries or a piece of orange and it was great it it i I'm, i'm not having that craving for a candy bun. Part of it, of course, is related to what we said about food being ultra-processed and what's contained in them, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that sugar works in the same uh, dopamine reward pathways as street drugs like cocaine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we when we going for the, when we're going after that candy bar, that cycle in our brain is also that habit circuit is being perpetuated in our brain. So okay. we want we want to unpack that, and then we want to think about a better solution for it. How much impact or how much sway do the bugs, the microbiome, the the, the bacteria in our guts have in what we crave? Because I've often wondered, is it true that like what you feed your body breeds the bacteria that like that food, and it becomes a cycle? And so if you try to break it, it, it's sometimes hard because your your actual bacteria in your gut is craving the food that they're used to. So it's a, it's a, I guess it's, you know, cravings could be interpreted in many different ways. And definitely the gut microbes are closely involved. But I think that one of the things we must realize is that the brain is connected to all of this. And so, for example, things like, um, stress actually precipitates habit circuits in the brain. So we need to make sure we understand the brain is involved in this and that we have the ability to maybe rethink it in a certain way. What what I feel like you're saying, Chris, is that, you know, if I'm eating candy bars all the, all the time or eating junk, you know, I'm eating um, a fast food meal all the time, the bad microbes are, are loving it, right? Because they're just building up that inflammation. They're just breaking through that lining of the gut. They're just having a party down there. Right. But ultimately, we're not doing well, right? That that right. becomes the issue. Initially, you not, won't notice it, but we know that within 24 hours, those microbes respond to the food. So you may not feel it immediately, but down the road, you're going to not be feeling that great. So it's mm. going to show up in some some type of symptom that you start to develop. But I, f- I think that um, if we understand that the brain is involved and that those those cravings are related to that as well, but they're also related to the type of food, then we can try to pivot around what it is that we're eating. Because if you're going to continue that cycle of craving, yeah. the craving is going to continue. So unless you right. identify it and then decide... What you know? What can I do differently? Can I switch this out? Can I 
think about it for a second, um, you know, then then you you you're really trying to do it differently. Hey, one last break here. Our sponsor is Golden Poppy Herbal Apothecary. And this one is a perfect fit, especially for what we're talking about today. They are a small, handcrafted, woman-run business dedicated to helping you find natural solutions to your health needs. They handcraft everything themselves in small batches using only organic and natural ingredients. Now, they cover everything from organic herbal tea blends for specific health issues to all-natural skin and body care. For this episode, I wanted to focus on something that aligns with what our guest Uma is saying which is the need to get more herbs in our life. And so I want to tell you about one of their most popular products, which is their Time for Bed Tea. This tea is packed full of organic boutique herbs, such as skullcap, linden, hawthorn flowers, passion flower, and of course, chamomile. Each of these herbs will help support the transition into sleep, and they will help your body stay asleep. The other issue is with things we put on our skin. And so I also want to mention their top-selling skin product, which is Rocky Mountain Recovery Skin Serum. It's a facial moisturizing oil that works for all types. It is antioxidant rich. It helps with fine lines, wrinkles, and ultimately repairs your skin using essential oils and herbs. And look, I'm just going to talk to you straight. This isn't in the script or notes or anything. I sat down with the owner. We're on Zoom. I'm looking into her operation. And I just know that this is a woman who has not only poured her heart and soul into this, but knows all the ins and outs of the herbs and extracts and oils that they use and how it can benefit you. The entire team at Golden Poppy Apothecary is either an herbalist or an aromatherapist. And you can just see their knowledge and their love for the power of plants woven through all of their products. And you can get 20% off your entire purchase by going to goldenpoppyherbs.com slash smart people. Check it out. Look at their teas. Look at their skincare. And use the power of plants to look and feel your best. Goldenpoppyherbs.com slash smart people. 20% off your entire order. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, because I have this belief. I'm not sure if it's grounded in reality that you know, cravings often are trying to tell me something. And sometimes it's for things that are good. I will crave healthy food. And oftentimes I, I think, you know what? I, my body's pretty smart. I bet it really needs asparagus Absolutely. today or steak. Absolutely. I mean, literally, right? Absolutely. But then that logic sometimes goes away. And I'm like, well, if we should eat what we crave, then I would eat a heck of a lot more sugar than I do. So I think it's that balance of that fine line, which is what you've been saying all along. I want to move into the kind of prescriptive nature. You have some really great lines, some great, um, again, prescriptions almost in your book. For example, I think it was uh, blueberries can help with PTSD. So I'd love to learn about those. And I want to start with this. How prescriptive can we actually be? And how does that work? Like, what do you know about how this food helps with this specific mental challenge? Right. So, you know, it's important for us to understand that nutritional psychiatry is actually not prescriptive, meaning that it's not about 10 milligrams of Prozac versus 10, 10 blueberries, right? Right. And okay. I think it's really important for us to understand because we know that the microbiome is so unique for each person, but we also know that a person's response, like I say all the time, every good food is not good for everyone. And mm. that means that, you know, you may respond to someone, to, to, to a certain food, and a family member may not. Uh, and I've had that happen in my office. I've had, you know, mother and daughter respond quite oppositely to the same healthy food. So it's it's not prescriptive, but it is offers really strong guidelines based on the evidence that we have around certain foods. A certain condition, there are foods you definitely want to stay away from or limit, cut back on, or be aware that you need to start cutting back on them and then start to build in those healthy those healthy foods, the healthy principles that you know this is this is based on. Within that realm, because there's also a good amount of evidence for emerging um, for different conditions that are that continue to emerge. A recent study from summer of this year 
by uh, well-known researchers at Stanford looked at fermented foods helping inflammation. It wasn't what they were searching for in the study, but they found it um, through, uh, you know, as they analyzed the data and was very, very impactful because it turns out that, you know, adding in fermented foods to your meals could actually help fend off that inflammation. So there's an easy tip right there for people um, Mm -hmm. by including things like kimchi, kombucha, miso, you know, always watch for the added sugar content, Um, you know, buy your fermented foods if you're buying them in the supermarket, buy them in the refrigerated section. Um, But, you know, there there are ways that you can fend this off. So um, in certain conditions, yes, I encourage people to eat within portion controls, um, you know, certain foods and to build them, build it up in a, in, in a certain way. Okay. So let's talk through some of those because at this point people are listening and they're going, I get it, but tell me how to fix it. So <laughs> tell me what, what's your, first, let's start here. What's your favorite food remedy? And again, I realize the language is not perfect, but you know, your, your favorite go-to and why as it comes to mental health and then the food we eat. So a combination of two things, um, irrespective of what proteins you're consuming, a plant-rich diet, and a combination of the use of spices, because the plant-rich diet gives you the fiber and nutrients, polyphenols, antioxidants, the color of the rainbow. It combines several principles of nutritional psychiatry in one. And I'm assuming that people know what healthy fats are, uh, and they're using those, and that they're choosing clean sources of protein, whether it be, you know, uh, a fatty pea, uh, a fatty salmon with the omega-3s or a piece of cauliflower or tofu, whatever it might be. And then what I want them to do is enhance all of this with how they use spices, because one of the hidden gems in our kitchen is our spice cabinet. It is filled with powerful um, uh powerful nutrients that we actually can be using for our mental well-being. One of my favorites being turmeric with a pinch of black pepper. Uh, black pepper makes it more active and bioavailable to your brain and body. Easy hack, easy to do. Um, start adding in a quarter teaspoon today um, with a pinch of black pepper to a super smoothie or tea. You know, just just kind of start start having a little bit of turmeric because that's that's an easy thing to do so those two things cover a lot of principles um and are two easy things to do and guess what whether you're carnivore or vegan like we talked about at the beginning Mm -hmm. you're you're covered because you know i want you to be eating those foods um Mm -hmm. maybe the carnivore might struggle a little bit because they don't want to eat the veggies but hey you know what our mother said at the beginning was all true the vegetables are good for us so we we just need to be including them in as well as anything else okay I want to ask you this. This can see. I know this will be a difficult one for you to to answer, but just go with me on this. If you could only eat five foods, what would they be? That's hard. Um, for, for health, I should say. For health, I would eat. Um, okay, so I'd, I love leafy greens. So I love dandelion greens, watercress. You know, the greener the better. I love. The, I love them. They give me a lot of nutrients. I would. Do uh, my other category would be spices. Those are one of my favorites. So all spices that I love, uh, especially the ones with brain brain um, healthy uh, kicks. I would, I think the rainbow colors of vegetables are an understatement for many people. They they just think that we're talking about the color, but they're extremely powerful in terms of being antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and the plant polyphenols really nurture those gut microbes. So that's another favorite group. Um. Another group that I love is the beans, the, the beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, rich in mm. fiber. They have short-chain omega-3s. Um, they have tons of protein in them. Um, and then for the fifth category, I would probably um, go with just making sure that a person has some healthy fats. So whether it's, you know, um, olive oil, avocado, um, maybe avocado oil, something like that. So, so I, I lump it into groups because I take those and then I, I love to do interesting things with those foods. What are some foods that you think we don't give enough credit to? So spices are a good one. I, I'd love to know which spices you recommend outside of turmeric. Um, are there any vegetables you, you wish you saw people consuming more of, yes. you know, cause I think it's tough, right? I'm not a chef. I, I, I love broccoli. I'll have my asparagus. Yeah. We have salad all the time, carrots, cucumbers, peppers, onions, you know, like, but outside of that, I just didn't grow up eating 
dandelions. Like I just didn't. So right. what right. what would you with your background and your your chef and your culture right. like? What would you recommend? So let's start with uh, those vegetables, right? I mentioned leafy greens and they're powerful, but there's another group of foods. Let's let's talk about prebiotic foods. Prebiotic fiber very important for the gut. And people don't realize that things like garlic, leeks, onions, things that many of us eat, put in a soup, put in a stew, especially this time of year, ha have rich prebiotic fiber. Um, you know, expand to learning a few new new veggies like jicama. Jicama is available at most supermarkets, rich prebiotic fiber. And there are lots of basic foods that, you know, bananas, oats, things that are now everyday um, diets that you can add in that have prebiotic fiber so let's 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 divide it up into that um then you know we want to understand that there's the regular fiber that you can get from lots of different veggies so some of my favorite veggies are sulfurophane rich veggies cauliflower brussels sprouts um you know uh, cabbage things like that they're actually low calorie very filling so you can actually eat quite a lot of it and you can be quite satiated, but you're not, you know, this is not a weight gaining food because you, you, it's not calorie dense, but it's nutrient dense. Mm. And so there's a whole, a whole lot of sulfurophane rich veggies that you can lean on. We talked about spices. So in addition to turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, some of my other favorites are rosemary, parsley, thyme, capsaicin from chili peppers, um, saffron. You know, they're, they're, there's a whole, almost every chapter in my book, I go through some of the spices. Mm. So those are some, uh, some sort of ways to expand your repertoire. And here's the thing. If you, you know, say you're not, not a cauliflower fan, get some frozen, plain frozen cauliflower and experiment with it. You know, add in some spices, roast it up in the oven um, and, and make a recipe that could be interesting for yourself. Say you don't eat legumes and it hasn't been something that you've eaten much of growing up, you know, start to start to get into some chickpeas, you know, buy them canned, buy an organic, um, canned chickpea or, you know, if you want to make them from scratch, you can boil them or pressure cook them and, you know, start to include them in an interesting way in your foods. You don't have to be sort of a, you know, you don't have to be a professional chef to, to start to really make some changes with healthy habits. You really just want to be thinking about how to enhance or amplify your meals. You know, can okay. you add in those fermented foods that you can buy? You know, you can buy kimchi at most good supermarkets. Um, so amplify your foods that way and then choose certain certain vegetables. I want to end with a couple of things. You know, if I'm listening and I'm struggling with anxiety right now, right? So tough environment. Maybe it's not clinical. It's just, look, I'm a little on edge and I, yeah. I, I've been looking to improve my diet anyways. Mm -hmm. Let's, because I'd like to compare and contrast, how might you tackle something like anxiety and then next versus something like depression? Sure. So, you know, um, with with anxiety, there are a couple of things that are not food related that I think are important. Okay. One is um, always be learning techniques like breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, a mindfulness practice, um, having an app that you can listen to to feel better. Because guess what? When you're having those anxious moments, whether it's a diagnosis or whether it's just how you're feeling as a human being in the current times, you can actually pick up your phone and listen to that app. You can use that breathing exercise. You can do a mindfulness technique because what you want to be doing, Chris, is you want to be practicing these and having them be part of your lifestyle so that when you have an anxious moment, you know what to lean into. Because it is not helpful to say to someone who is anxious, calm down or take a deep breath it's actually very annoying and and can be very off-putting to the person because they, they, they their system is in such overdrive that it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. That's why you learn the techniques when, you, when you're having less anxious days. But then you look at, the first thing to look at is what are the foods that you're eating that are driving the anxiety? And a big one here are artificial sweeteners. A lot of people saying, you know, I'm eating too much of candy, I'm eating too much of this, will go to a a dietary soda or will go to a sugar-free candy or sugar-free version of something. The artificial sweeteners are not good for your gut. A lot of the everyday ones that we know are actually very disruptive and that drives anxiety. So clean up your diet and there are a whole, um, in my book, I go through lists of other foods that you kind of want to 
start to limit to help your anxiety. This is one area where gluten does show up. So it might be mm. that you have non, uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or you, um, you know, you've tried everything else and they're longer lists than what I'm sharing that, you know, and it's still not working. Well, then I'll have someone give up, you know, gluten. Also the form of gluten is important. Um, and try over time to see is that helping. And we're only excluded if that we notice a correlation. But then foods that you can embrace are fiber-rich foods. I always say in anxiety, uh, fiber foods are your friends because they break down more slowly in the body. They keep your blood sugar on an even keel. They keep you satiated. And all this is related also to uh, the gut and to the brain. Um, fermented foods are actually excellent for anxiety. So adding in, you know, the kombucha, um, the miso, all of those. Um, and then, you know, uh, the spices, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper is a good one. Add in some magnesium-rich foods, potassium-rich foods, um, uh, uh, selenium-rich foods, and herbs like lavender and passionflower have actually been very helpful with things like anxiety. So those are some that you can you can start to add in. Fantastic. And how would that differ from depression? And again, of course, there's a lot of steps we can take. But right. from a food perspective, what small tweaks might you make if somebody was presenting with depression as opposed to anxiety? Absolutely. So one of the things to start removing are those uh, processed uh, meats and cheeses and uh, that actually contain uh, nitrates, which worsen depression. And uh, things like um, certain types of high glycemic carbs uh, actually are not great for you. Uh, the, uh, just where you obtain, so, you know, sort of really, very highly refined flours and pastas and things like that. You may want to just start to cut back on those. We talked about the added refined sugars, cleaning those up a little bit. But here's where you want to lean into those prebiotic foods that I mentioned, uh, berries, garlic, onions, leeks, asparagus, you mentioned that, also a source of rich prebiotic fiber. Add in some fermented foods, we've talked about those, um, and then um, add in the healthy fats like olive oil, nuts, nut butters, avocados, uh, omega-3 fats from uh, uh, fatty seafood um, like um, wild sockeye salmon, uh, you know, sardines, or you can get plant-based sources from uh, sea vegetables, walnuts, um, chia seeds, flax seeds. And then you want to pay attention to micronutrients like zinc and foods rich in that, uh, foods rich in folate, foods rich in iron, um, and um, herbs like oregano. So, you know, there are ways that you can then for um, for depression, start to almost amp up your diet that you have these available to you. I love it. Well, and like you said, you know, it's hard because we listen and we hear this and we say, wow, it's a lot. But your book, and and, and that's what I want to just end on here, is uh, it encapsulates all of this in an easily digestible, no pun intended, way, <laughs> right? Um, with recipes, with data, uh, with all types of things. So the book is, This is Your Brain on Food. And it talks about an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight, essentially, you know, most of the common mental illnesses and just mental challenges that most people are dealing with today. So Uma, I wanted to first say thank you so much. I also wanted to say, you know, for people who are hearing this, like myself, right? And we go, okay, I got the book. I'm digging in. Where do you think we should get started and what other resources or what other places are you uh, putting things out these days? Absolutely. So to get started, ask yourself if there's one habit that you've picked up during the pandemic that you want to change and start there, whatever that may be. Um, I'm, I'm thinking it may be a food and tweaking that would be helpful based on what we talked about today. You um, can find me on social media at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. We're always posting on the current research, updated findings, uh, cool graphics to help you, you know, learn new foods and, and really it's all about making it easier for people and unpacking the information, but we base everything on scientific evidence. So you'll see in my citation and my 
um, graphics that I do on Instagram, you'll find the study that we're quoting or that we are integrating. Um, I also am releasing my first virtual course in nutritional psychiatry uh, to help those who want to dive deeper into the book and go into more topics. You know, a book never covers everything you want to write about. So this is my opportunity to share more. And um, I also have a website where we, um, you know, I'd love for people to join me there and interact because we're always, uh, I'm always putting up new blogs and that's umanaidumd.com. Fantastic. Well, I just realized, you know, if I was listening to this and I'm driving in the car, I'd say, oh, what was that again? So listen, I, I say this every episode, but if you go to smartpeoplepodcast.com right on the front page, when you hear this, you'll see this episode. We will link to Uma's book website, social. So you don't have to memorize anything, but we link to it there so that you can easily find Uma, find this great book and learn how to heal our brains through food. So Uma, again, really appreciate you being on the show. Really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, hopefully this is the spark we all need in this new year. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you, Chris. This week's guest was Uma Naidu. Uma's book, This Is Your Brain on Food, can be found wherever books are sold. The episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. You can find more about Smart People Podcast at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can always head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. We appreciate you being here and taking an hour out of your week to listen to the show. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode. Mm-hmm.